3: coming up next on the Liverboard Sailing Podcast.
1: My favorite piece of advice is to leave your expectations at the dock. You're gonna go into this with an idea. So many people get inspired by YouTube channels and uh, Instagram influencers. So they have this romantic idea of sailing and living aboard or tiny life in general. And then they start doing it and realize that it's not all it chalked up to be. So leave your expectations at the dock.
3: Welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Annika. On the Liverboard Sailing Podcast, I chat with awesome people who live, work, and travel on their sailboats. My guests share inspiring stories and real life advice about the lifestyle so that you and I can be better prepared for our sailing adventures. In this episode, we'll dive into the Liverboard experience in California with Marissa and Chris from Sailing Avocet. They are a couple in their 20s who bought a sailboat that was a bit of a project boat, but as you'll hear, it was definitely worth it. We also talk a lot about the liveaboard life in a marina, what are the upsides and downsides of living on a boat in California, how much does it cost, and a lot more. If you are thinking about living on a boat, especially in a marina, you definitely want to listen to the tips and advice from Marissa and Chris. So without further ado, let's go. Why don't we get started with some introductions? And I know you're somewhere in California, but whereabouts in California are you?
1: Yeah, so we are Chris and Marissa. We are the crew of sailing vessel Avocet. She's a 1979 Choylee Lee 41. And for the past three years, we've been down here in Southern California in the Ventura area, working as hard as we can to get the boat ready to sail off into New Horizons.
3: And Ventura is uh, somewhere quite south, is it? Southern California?
0: It's just below Central California, so it's it's on. It's not as low as LA, so we're actually above Redondo Beach and Newport Beach, but we're right underneath Santa Barbara. So it's verging on Central California, but it is definitely Southern California.
1: Yeah, it's a really sweet spot to be because you don't have all of the chaotic busyness of LA, but you also or Santa Barbara for that matter. So it's just kind of a very yeah. relaxed area to be. So it's definitely unique in California.
3: So you guys are a couple in your 20s. How have you ended up living on a sailboat or chosen to live on a sailboat?
1: So that's that's kind of a funny story. Chris actually grew up in a sailing family. So I'll let him explain
0: that. Yeah, I, I just grew up sailing big boats and small boats. Uh, we had a lake really close to my home called Huntington Lake. And that way in the lake in the in the summertime, we took out Boats from four feet up to 25 feet and that's where I got my understanding of sailing not only from just like a bare bones perspective but that's also where I started racing uh so taught racing at a young age at like 12 years old and then that's actually what me and Marissa first got into her first day ever on a sailboat was in a regatta and yes I did suck her head into that it was like oh like come sailing it'll be a nice getaway like it'll be fun it's, it no, was it's not. relaxing it was not and sure enough it was a regatta and it wasn't <laughs> relaxing but no, it was not <laughs> we did well and we learned a lot about communication very fast and thank god she got the cruising not only cruising but she got she got the sailing bug uh you know very fast so
1: yeah so to reiterate, Chris grew yeah, up in a wow. sailing family. He is, his family has a Mason 43 sailboat that's been around for about 30 years or so. Um, so they grew up sailing pretty much every weekend in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is known to create very salty sailors. So Chris and his older brother took after that experience. And his older brother actually has a sailboat and lives aboard, too. His brother John has a Hans Christian 33. They've been cruising since 2020. 20-
0: 2012, At least 10 years now on that boat. Yeah. And yeah, so they've done a lot of cruising from Washington down the West Coast to the Panama Canal on East Coast. So they've been a huge uh, support team first and foremost, but also a lot of inspiration for us to do the same thing.
1: Yeah. So when we were in college, it's really funny, actually. So I was getting my double major. So I was really busy with my school studies. We were planning our wedding. We were preparing to move out. And we were trying to figure out where the heck we were going to live. So we were toying with the idea of renting, maybe buying a house. And then Chris said, well, why not a boat? I mean, we can do that for a little while until we figure out what we want to do. Okay, good idea.
0: So we first thought about the live aboard boat idea more of like a crash pad at first. And then when we started looking into boats more and more and more, we understood what we didn't want and what we did want. The first time we got on Avocet, it was like a very familiar feeling for me, uh, like I said, I grew up on a Mason Forty Three, so it's a very similar feeling inside. A lot of teak, heavy displacement boats. when you step on it, the whole thing doesn't move over. And Marissa, uh, I think you know, respected and really liked all those other things that I saw in it. So it was not the sun, it was not the boat we were looking at to begin with. We were looking at junction boats, um, but we ended up on Avocet just because it fell in a lot, you know, fell in a place for us. So
1: yeah. So the boat life thing, I mean. Tiny living is a really cool concept, especially as it's become more popular over the years. You see so many tiny homes, van lifers, uh, schoolies, and it's just incredible how someone can transform a small space and make it into a home. So I was really into that idea of the simplicity of it. So Boat Life kind of just checked all the boxes and Avocet did a really good job of giving us a home. Yeah, that's kind of the long way to say that's yeah. how we ended up here.
3: <laughs> yeah, no, that's really interesting. And uh, it's great to hear that you had that inspiration from the family. You know, you somebody close to you had already proven to you that this lifestyle is a real thing and a pretty cool one. And yeah, it definitely matches that tiny living trend.
1: Yeah, it makes it a little bit easier, too, because... Chris's family is so used to his older brother already, you know, paving the way. So all of those hard questions like, well, what if this happens? Well, have you thought about this? Have already been answered. So everyone's just like, okay, like they're just going to have fun. I'll and they, just, they leave us alone.
3: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And you talked a little bit about your boat, but how long have you lived on board now?
1: Three years. Um, yeah, kind of. I mean, we moved aboard pretty much instantly. We graduated college got married, and then moved aboard Avocet all within the span of a week. So it was, it was crazy. Yeah. And we moved from one end of the state all the way down to the other end because we were living in North Lake Tahoe, which is the mountains kind of in the middle of, I mean, it is in the middle of California, Nevada. So we moved from very high up in California to pretty much very near the bottom. So it was a huge transition.
0: What a good one. And Yeah, Yeah, we started, right away we started, the boat was a project boat. Only reason we were able to afford it was because it needed a lot of love. So right away we started doing work. Uh, When we first bought it, it was, we had about a two-month span before we needed to move aboard. So I went down to Southern California, which is about a 12-hour drive, uh, and I worked on the boat for weeks at a time while she was still at school. So I got the boat livable, and then when we moved aboard, we started tackling projects that were big and small, um, renovating rooms or just doing varnish, like there was always and we still are doing. Hasn't it hasn't <laughs> ended but it uh it's been yeah, it's been a solid three years of work. And I think going back to like having someone that like my brother who was who has already done it, it's yes, you can get the inspiration of like wow, I want to do that. But it, he's also been very real with me when it comes to like what it means to have a boat and especially our age, nineteen seventy nine with all the teak, yes, it's gorgeous. But there's just a lot of maintenance that you have to do like constantly. And it's, it's, I mean, I don't think I could, I don't think I would have done it uh, if I hadn't gotten the beforehand warnings, because it is a ton of work and you have to love it because yeah. if you don't, there's just, there's you'll no go crazy. Yeah, you'll go crazy
1: so. You will go crazy. You might go crazy even if you do it we love it.
0: And yeah, we <laughs> still go crazy. So. I
1: respect it. I don't know if I'd say I love it. I don't necessarily love sanding. I just respect the process. <laughs>
3: <laughs> that's a good way to a good way of saying it for sure so you said that it was a bit of a project boat but was it sailable right from the beginning or did it require some major work
1: come to find out no so from the outside it's kind of like the old saying never judge a book by the cover so the outside she looked structurally sound and there weren't major issues however there were a few structural biggest, I mean, issues biggest, in our rig. The biggest,
0: biggest thing was our chain plates. Uh, mm-hmm. And everyone that we talked to was like, replace your chain plates. Like, it's not even a question. Please do that. Like, everyone said that. A lot of people don't listen to that. And they just keep going forth with their life as now they never got that warning. We definitely heeded that warning, uh, very, like, right off the bat. So we didn't take the boat out sailing until we had the cap shroud, the backstay, and the thin piece all taken about taken out inspected and then replaced everything because they were all cracking at the deck so our sea trial was um it was like gusting 30 knots the seas were horrible and we all looked at each other like we wanted to go sailing we wanted to feel the boat but none of us wanted to test the rig in that way and come to find out after like pulling most of our chain plates pulled apart in pieces um, they literally
1: broke apart in our yeah, hands. We most were really, really recently, happy we
0: hadn't done that sale. Yeah, because... so
1: it's actually a good thing we replaced those chain plates and those crucial pieces when we did, because when we finished replacing our chain plates, all we had left were the. Yeah, so
0: we did the capture out backstay, and then we took the boat sailing for about a year and a half, and then when we got around to it, the lowers. So there's four lowers on our boat. Those were all behind cabinetry, mm-hmm. so I really had to like destroy the cabin in order to get at those. So we pushed that out for about a year and a half uh, with the mentality of, yeah, we got the cap shrouds, like the rig should stay up. It'll hold. If we had, a, you know, uh, a chain plate break. And those ones were actually the worst. Those are the ones were literally like they were just coming apart in pieces. Like they were, yeah. there was nothing left of them and it was terrifying. So
1: They rusted through yeah. and they cracked apart in Chris's hand. And I'm, I'm actually in the process of writing an article about chain plates. So I'll send that to you when it's finished. But that so yeah, the was the was biggest big one, concern. And the engine
0: was the biggest concern, too, in the right. wiring. Engine wiring. I mean, pretty much all three weren't ideal. And a lot of, like, the wiring yeah. alone was a giant fire hazard. So uh, I, think, I, I think our boat got along through good grace and whatever we you know, were, lucky. Touching we were very wood lucky for 40 years because some of the stuff we pulled out in the last three years is, is just amazing that it hadn't either caught yeah. fire or sank.
1: so in retrospect in regards to your question <laughs> it seems like it wasn't that big of a deal but now the more i think about it and we talk about it, i feel like it's actually kind of a big deal
0: <laughs> and it all comes back down to like where like a lot of people have different mentalities on what you know, what is good, what is, what is a good amount of corrosion, what is a good amount of whatever, like, and a lot of people would say, that's fine, you can keep going. But when chain plates are falling apart in your hands, that's where I cross the line. So yeah, uh, yeah.
3: What are your favorite qualities? So it's a Chorley from 1979, about 41 feet. So what are your favorite qualities like on the, well, inside or outside? You mentioned the teak. So I've seen the boat. It is beautiful, very classic looking, gorgeous boat. But what are your favorite features?
1: So, I mean, I I didn't come from a sailing background, so I'm still very new and very curious about multiple boat designs. I like to take a look at everything. It doesn't matter the year. It doesn't matter the style. I like to break down what I'm looking at and figure out what I like and don't like. But what I have figured out is that through every boat I've looked at, I tend to gravitate more traditional styles. So, like... Choi Lee, Hans Christian, Sparkman Stevens, that's actually one of my favorite designs, just because they have classic lines, there's a lot of teak, beautiful bright work, and generally and heavy displacement. Kind of, I was
0: gonna say, like you you kinda of, yeah. you kinda of gravitate toward heavy displacement boats because we've been on a lot of production boats in the last couple of years and we've sailed them in very good weather and very bad weather. And you can just kinda of like understand clearly wow. It's amazing how much of a difference 27,000 pounds underneath you feels compared to 10,000 or 15,000, even at the the same length.
1: Yeah. when Funny enough, when we first stepped on our boat, I didn't like it. (laughs) I hated it. It was such a unique design, and I was so unfamiliar with it that I remember we walked down the companionway. I looked at Chris. and was like, this isn't it. And he's like, just... Just feel me out. Just hang out for like an hour. Let's take a look, get a feel for him. Like, fine. So we're looking around, pulling up all the cabinets and looking into things. I'm like, and I started to warm up to it. I'm like, okay, I'm seeing the big picture. If we can fix X, Y, and Z, I can see myself in this boat. But one of the biggest selling points for me was having a comfortable galley. We have a huge fridge, um, a lot of counter space. We have a lot of seating area, so we can host a lot of people. And we have an aft cabin, which was definitely on our list of important things. We can appreciate V-berths, but it just isn't our style. For comfort, we prefer sleeping in an aft cabin. So Avocet had pretty much everything we wanted in a boat, except for a stall shower, which we feel that a boat of that size should have a dedicated stall shower. But later on, we did remedy that by pretty much... Completely changing the blueprint of our head.
0: <laughs> yeah, I went and actually put a stall shower, and it physically wasn't able to do that. <laughs> but we we moved everything to one side, so now we have a shower curtain that, that yeah. shades all of the all of the stuff you don't want to have to get wet.
1: So it works. So, you improvise with yeah. everything on a walking, boat. There's a lot of compromise. Walking
0: down into our boats, like I don't think she liked it because it was different, very different compared to other boats. Instead of having like a, a saloon off to the left and like a L shape or a U shape, uh, our boat, you walk down the stairs. You have our uh, on the starboard side you have an aft cor- or an aft stateroom on the port side you have the aft quarter berth and then you have the nav station and then you, on forward of that you have her big galley which is kind of like an L shape but it's, it's a little bit bigger than that so you have a giant I almost call it an island where the actual fridge is it's big enough that you can put like a full size extra large pizza box in,
1: We've in tested many it. of them <laughs> so that was
0: like a selling point alone and then you walk forward of that and you have this giant U-shaped, it's like a horseshoe, um, salon table. So it's interesting. It has butterfly tables. They pop up on either side and you can fit. We've had 10 people at our table. 10 people and, and three kids. And it's uh, yeah. it's huge for what it is. And then in front of that, you have a very, It's. I mean, it, it's small. It's a, a modified small,
1: V-Birth. We've...
0: It's a V-Birth, but it's yeah. definitely on the small side. Um, you, you can fit a whole, a couple can fit up there. It's more comfortable alone. Really big things on the inside of our boat that I love is that all of our weight, like big weight, like the engine, is nice and low and centerline. Uh, it is underneath the floor, so you have to clean it more often. However, it's a, it's, it has the weight where you want it, which is nice and low. And um, anyways, that's really great. We have our tankages. It's like similar story. All the fuel is, is fiberglass into the keel. And then our water tanks are also fiberglass tanks. And those are up underneath our uh, salon benches. So, all of our weight is nice and low, and most of our livable space, I would say, is actually underneath the water line.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um,
0: we don't have a very high cabin top. I fit just barely, and we don't have very much headroom either. So, we have 6 1 headroom in the boat. Uh, that's, I would say, the one thing that I would love to have more of, but it is what it is. Yeah. end we, we're nice and low, so she sails very nicely. Um, she stiffens up at about 15 degrees, she points incredibly well. And, uh, contrast to that, to the boat, I grew up sailing the Mason 43, that boat stiffens up at like 45 degrees. So you're like on your ear all the time. So, so just so,
1: imagine trying yeah. to cook at a 40 degree angle. <laughs> it's, it's not happening. <laughs> And there's people who do it. I've followed a few people. Families. Families who live on Mason 43s. And there's videos of them cooking while underway. And the boat's fully at a 40 degree angle. I'm like, oh my goodness. They are braver than I am.
3: (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty wild. But that's why I love hearing about these, uh, not really lesser known boats. But, you know, the ones that are not the typical production boats. Because they are so unique. They're just maybe less of them made. Or, I don't know, maybe it's the age thing that they were just a little more different in their design and they uh, i find a lot of the older boats that i see on yacht world and they look super cool like there's like oh that's really unique so it's super cool to hear about these different kind of boat designs and then what your favorite qualities are so i'm learning as i'm listening i like this
0: <laughs> yeah and then and like the last thing on the inside is that there's just tons of storage like that's another big difference yeah. between like our, our boat versus a newer production boat uh, newer production boats, you have a, a giant vast cavity inside. So it feels huge inside, which is nice, but it's, there's two big things I don't like about that is in, in a seaway, you have a much higher tendency to get thrown across the room and much higher, uh, you're, you much more able to get hurt, which I don't like. And then you all lose a lot of storage. So like we can fit just so much crap in our boat. I mean, it's <laughs> incredible. Like it really is. Uh, that was another big thing when we were looking at boats, we were looking at Catalinas and stuff like that. And it came, we came to the realization the first time we stepped on one that we could not fit all of my video gear, all of our tools, all of our clothes. Or
1: our cats. Or our
0: cat stuff. I mean, there was just like a lot of like check marks that were not happening. So yeah. being able to store things properly and safely inside uh, when it comes to not only our personal items, but also like food for actually doing crossings is like huge. I mean, way huge.
3: Yeah, no, that's a great list. And, and we'll definitely, you know, I could appreciate the need for space, especially as you live and work uh, on the boat. And and we'll get to that in a moment. But as we are in the winter season, I have to ask about winter in California because I've talked to a lot of people in the Pacific Northwest, but you guys are a few thousand miles and kilometers south. So how are the winters uh, over there in your area?
0: Super mild.
1: Yeah, it's a good spot to be. It's a good spot to live aboard. Our winters, I think we see a low of maybe...
0: 40, 40 I mean, that at, 45, the at the lowest I mean, that, that, at that Man. point we are shivering and, and hating every moment of it so higher up in like the san francisco area will get a lot a lot colder actually yeah. but and also a lot wetter it rains a lot more in Northern similar california similar
1: to the pacific northwest yeah. yeah but
0: southern california we it's actually kind of a burden because i mean we're in a drought uh but i mean we never get rain down here it's 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 very sad and, the, and everything is dirty, too. That's like the biggest downside of where we're at, I would say, is that the rig is always filthy because yeah. we do get these big Santa Ana winds that come through, especially in this time of year. When it gets cold in coastal zones and hot in the Central Valley, there's a big low pressure that forms and it just shoves a, I mean, aggressive winds down. Down through our way, and then that yeah. takes all the sand from the beach and just throws it on us. So
1: well, or the the dirt from the fields with the or Santa that. Ana winds. We'll yeah. get dirt from the fields, and then occasionally strawberries wash up, and it's it's, it's awesome. actually it's very pretty when it happens. But then you realize that's kind of sad because the whole shoreline will be lined with strawberries, so it looks really cool, but also really sad that all the food went to waste. <laughs>
3: Oh, that's so weird. I never heard of that. I'll have to Google that and, and find some photos. But how aggressive are the winds? Like, do you sail in the winter months?
0: Oh, yeah. And, and there's there's very, good, there's very good telltales when you're going to have those things happen. Weather reporting is fairly accurate down here. Uh, but like a Santa Ana will be reported on at least a week in advance. And if you're out at the islands, like the Santa Cruz Islands that we have right out in our back door, there's plenty of places that you can wrap around and get coverage from. Um, we do go sailing, and if one of those pops up, we've actually been in the ocean with a Santa Ana.
1: Yeah, it was it one was of not those. Intru-
0: it was not fun. It but- was
1: one of those things where I mean, Chris grew up sailing in the bay, and Bay Area sailors are very hardy sailors that deal with high winds, but they don't deal with swell because the San Francisco Bay doesn't necessarily have swell. Mm. So we were actually sailing back from Santa Barbara, and we're like, oh no, there's a Santa Ana wind, and oh, we're fine. We'll reef. It's gonna be okay. We were not okay. We were okay, but it was it was a big lesson where we realized we are never going was, to push ourselves that way again. Yeah. It was very sporty. There was a moment where Chris had to run up to the bow to secure our anchor that was trying to deploy while underway. I was in the cockpit holding on to our bimini, which was trying to fly off, while at the helm trying to keep us straight and make sure Chris didn't fall overboard.
0: And the, and the Santa Anas, are, they range <laughs> like a mild one is like the 25 to 30 knot range. Aggressive ones are like the 45, the 50. The last one we had was a 60 knot to yeah. 65. I mean, so that, that's, not, that's not nothing. They're gale winds, for sure. They're very, very aggressive when they can. So
1: people do sail on them. I don't think they mean to, though. Only we if you have, have, have to. I yeah. would not recommend it.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. But there is some other good sailing there. And, and I was going to ask whether it's tempting to consider going to Mexico for the winter. But it kind of sounds like... The situation weather-wise isn't too bad over there. <laughs>
0: no, it, it, and they're they're odd, they're oddball events too. So they, it's not like a, oh we'll have one every weekend. It's like oh we might have one this month or two this month. Or like la- I think actually two years ago it was fairly aggressive. We had one almost every week. And other than that, you have just a beautiful 10 to 15 knots coming from the northwest that is pretty predictable every day.
1: However, Mexico so. still sounds very nice. Yes. So we're hoping by this time next year we'll be in Mexico. Depends on the last bits of our boat projects.
0: We will definitely. High, hell or high water will be in Mexico this time next year. Right. Next season we'll be there. All right.
3: That's amazing. I love having these goals and I've seen uh, quite a few people cross the border to Mexico which uh, is in the you know recent weeks and it's so exciting to see people go into um, a different country and and see what uh, exciting things lie over there but One thing, um, one place I've seen you guys visit and talk about is the Channel Islands, and I see other people visit them as well on Instagram, of course. For someone who doesn't know a whole lot about the area at all, tell me more about these Channel Islands, because everybody seems to be raving about them. So uh, what are they all about? How far are they?
1: Oh my goodness. So the Channel Islands are about a... Well, Santa Cruz Island is the largest of the eight Channel Islands. It is about a three-hour sail from here in Ventura, and...
0: Four hours, modestly. It's about 18 miles away, nautical miles away.
1: 18 nautical (laughs) miles away, so it's the largest of the eight-channel islands. A lot of people think of Catalina Island, which does have inhabitants on it full-time. It's a very touristy place, beautiful, but you go there to spend money. The northern islands, such as Santa Cruz, which is the most popular, is absolutely wild. You are in such a unique place where it can feel like the Mediterranean, it can feel like Mexico, it can feel like a jungle just because there's so many different microclimates on the island and so many different it just doesn't feel like california
0: uh, too yeah that's the biggest thing is that you go you have a four-hour sail and then you feel like you're some you're a world away so uh beautiful waters incredible sea life like like santa cruz island there's nobody there so you can go on a hike and see like two people
1: you can only get there by boat too so there are uh, tour guides that go out there called island packers. So it's like a cattle boat filled with people that shuttle out there. And there's two campgrounds on the islands for these people to go hang out at for a weekend or a week at a time and then go home. But on some of the more remote parts of the island that you can only get by get to by personal boat, those are really the most unique spots because. I mean, I don't, I don't want to give out all of our secrets, but I think that the more we talk about the Channel Islands, the more known they get, the more protection they'll get because it is a marine sanctuary in a few spots, and um, there's also eight endemic species on the island, including the island fox, which is smaller than our cat, mm-hmm. and the island blue jay, which is a gorgeous blue jay in a really deep blue color. And there's been times where these species are nearly endangered, nearly extinct. So the the Channel Islands Conservancy has done a great job protecting these islands and keeping them safe and around for future generations. So there's a lot to see out there. It's beautiful, great diving, hiking, snorkeling, uh, boating, and sights to see. It's just incredible. So. I could talk about them all day. I've done a lot of research and worked very closely with the Conservancy and the National Park, picking their brain to know more. And there's also a lot of history, too. So although the Channel Islands are not lived on, the northern ones, that Santa Cruz Island is not inhabited by anybody, but it did have natives that lived on the land. And then the island was used for ranching for a while. It was privately owned, and there were the Santa Cruz Island sheep. That were sold off into uh, San Francisco, so
0: there's still an olive orchard out there as well.
1: Yeah, you still see the remnants of ranch life around Santa Cruz Island. Like there's still the ranch houses, there's still the stables, and then the oh, olive geez. orchard. That's a feral orchard now. So it's really cool to feel. I don't. I don't know how to explain it. It's just such a unique feeling, which is why I will ramble on about it if you don't stop me. <laughs>
3: It sounds like a lovely place and I love hearing that there are still sort of those untouched uh, areas as well because I see and hear that a lot in British Columbia. And for me it's easier to understand that like because I'm more familiar with, with BC that yeah, of course BC has a lot of untouched land, but it's so great to hear that even somewhere you know close to big population centers, uh, like all the cities in Southern California, that there's still those little gems that you can go and find. Uh, can you sail there year-round? Are there like a year-round kind of destination?
1: Yeah, yeah, you can sail there year-round. It's more popular in the summertime just because that's when the weather's a little more favorable. The winters can get very cold out there, but there's a lot of different microclimates, like I mentioned. So it could be like 50 degrees here on the mainland, and it could be 70 degrees out there, which is and it's so also wild. Like wintertime
0: here, like October, November, highest points to have a Santa Ana event. It's also kind of known as the Southern California Summer during the summer months, it can we can have stuff like June gloom. It can be very not great. This is the best time in this area usually. And anyway, so basically, we all we already said to you earlier that wintertime is kind of a fad. Anyways, here it's it's always nice here. Uh, growing up in Northern California, we actually did have different seasons. Here, you can use epoxy all year long, or you could have a bathing suit on your all year long. So, like no matter what you're doing, you're kind of set, which yeah. is great.
3: Okay, sold. Southern California, Liverpool. Yes. <laughs> None of this Pacific Northwest rain and, and uh, winter and snow and all that. So that sounds great. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has
2: professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. Right. So
3: one thing or one reason I wanted to talk to you guys is because I know that you guys obviously also work and uh, more or less from the boat, on and off the boat. So if we can talk about that a little bit, maybe maybe we'll just get started by what do you actually do for a living, if you don't mind sharing, and what does your work days look like?
0: For the last seven years, I've been a freelance camera operator for documentaries, advertising, uh, not really feature films at all, but more low budget stuff like that. I've also done a lot of my own stuff when it comes to finding a client like who is a X, Y, and Z making videos for them. And they have that to publish on all of their social media platforms. Uh, That's kind of the reason that we started our own YouTube channels because we already had most of the gear. I had a camera in my hands anyways, and I wanted to film it. So it just became a natural thing for us to make videos when that isn't going well because it is freelance and I'm completely reliant on myself and the connections that I know. Say it's a uh, slow month or like during COVID when all of Hollywood got shut down and there was zero work to be had, um, I started doing boat work. So in the last, I would say, year and a half to mm-hmm. two years, I've been doing a lot of fiberglassing, wood woodworking and painting and all that kind of stuff. So when I'm not working on our boat, I have been taking up other boats that yeah. need attention. So
1: And Chris is pretty busy. I mean, he goes on a few shoots a month. So yeah, a few shoots a month and then fills the rest of his time with boat work for us and boat work for other people and then editing for our YouTube channel whenever we have the time. (laughs) And then I have my own business. I do digital marketing and social media management. So I have built up a client base since, oh my goodness, I think I officially started my business in 2018 when I graduated college because my whole life people have given me so much grief about always being on my phone. So I turned it into a business. And now I can tell them that I'm working. <laughs> so it's really cool because I'm able to work with some very interesting and unique people such as Aaron Carey from Rome Generation PR and uh, Lynn Hardy and uh, even ski resorts because mm-hmm. ski uh, snowboarding is actually part of my background. So I just have a wide variety of clients, which keeps me very busy and very entertained
0: and the best part about it is that it's very remote yeah so she can work wherever she's got internet um, so that hopefully is going to work out in our favor when we actually untie the lines i don't know how much like video we're probably doing for clients but any boat that has ever been made needs work done on it and we have pretty much every tool in the book on set so i'll be able to find work i'm sure in which yeah. <laughs>
3: Yeah, exactly, and that's great. It sounds like, uh, at least for you, Marissa, you have a very mobile job, and and of course yours is more hands on. But not to say that you couldn't do it in any location. It's not like you have to go to an office or anything like that. But you did mention internet availability, and of course I'll have to talk about what is your internet setup because I love hearing about what people have done, what do they rely on in different parts of the world. So how does, I mean, you guys are in the U S am I correct in assuming that it's not a big hurdle uh, to arrange internet. That is pretty fast and works well.
0: internet's decently fine. Like we're on the dock right now. uh, But something that's worked actually a lot better for us is that we just have unlimited plans on our phone now Mm -hmm. that have actually come down way in price compared to like, say five years ago. So for 25 bucks a month, we can have unlimited data and we just do personal hotspots wherever we have a decent internet connection and cellular connection. So we've been, at the Anchorage in Santa Barbara and, you know, I'm editing and uploading and you're doing whatever you're doing. Uh, Santa Cruz Island doesn't have very good service at all. so For
1: any cell provider. So yeah, it's kind it's more of...
0: more of a retreat for us when yeah. we go out there. And then whenever we sail home uh, or sail wherever, like a few miles out of Santa Cruz, we can get service again and, and kind of get back online. But, but that's kind of the biggest point of us to, you know, to do our main trip and our voyage is that uh, we've been doing... Work, work for a long time, work. and we definitely are excited to unplug a little bit. So if we have yeah. to go to a cafe or something like that to get work done, I think it'll be good. It'll be a good break for keeping you know our home as a as a home. less yeah less distracted yeah. place versus not mixing work
1: with play. That's the biggest part is figuring out the balance because sometimes I mean Chris has his editing station all set up at our nav station. It's very it's a very commanding space. You walk right down, you see this giant editing screen and or Mac mini and then the rest of the things all scattered about and it can just get so cluttered and stressful um, when you're surrounded by work all the time. So that's actually a problem. I don't know if it's really a problem. It's more like just a thought when it comes to our YouTube channel is that Chris is working on filming and editing anyways for clients and getting paid to do that. And the last thing he wants to do when he gets home from a week long shoot where he's going from 6 in the morning till 8 o'clock at night is sit down and edit our YouTube videos, which is basically just hours of sifting through footage of us sanding. Yeah. It's not very fun for him.
0: so It's not the last thing I want to do, but it's also yeah. not the first thing. I w- I'd yeah. rather just lay down and relax for a little bit and not edit. But,
1: and that's why we've um, only been able to do about one YouTube video a month, um, because we're trying to find that balance of work and play and how to keep this fun for us, because once our YouTube channel or any of our social media begins to feel like work, we're done. Yeah, it's not, it's not fun. It we're yeah. not. Yeah.
3: yeah, and that makes total us. Even as someone who works from a home, I find it sometimes just nice to go to a coffee shop to work. Just to, you know, get a reason to leave the house. Especially like now, still Canada is quite conservative with the pandemic. Things still limiting things a little bit. So it just feels like such a big thing to go to a coffee shop now <laughs> so I totally get that getting a little change of scenery to get a little bit of a you know more inspiration just away from the the normal surroundings and I mean of course the office is always there but don't really want to go back to the office <laughs> so you guys then obviously you mentioned that you uh, are in a marina is it hard to find a Liverpool slip in your region because I comparing it to like it's British Columbia is difficult so how is it there
1: Yeah, so California is a little bit tricky in that in that concept. There's places like in the Bay Area, which have kind of ruined the live aboard vibe for a lot of people. And it's no one's fault in particular, but rotting boats are very expensive to deal with. So the past 10 years, I'd say there's been a issue where people have either abandoned their boats. Or the boats have fallen into disrepair and they awesome. refuse to pay slip fees. I think that's the last
0: 30 years. yeah.
1: last 30, 30 years, years. And it costs these cities a lot of money to deal with. So one of the things that people have turned to is just saying no more liveaboards. Because that tends to be part of the root of the problem is people living on their boats. And then they can't pay for things. And then it just it goes downhill from there. And, and the
0: other part of it too is that at that point the cities will start cracking down on liveaboard Mm-hmm. uh like availability uh usually each city has a percentage of that they allow in the in their marinas usually it's like in the 30 to 40% some people are at 50% but in the last i'd say 10 years they've knocked that down from like yeah. 30% to 15% to 10% 5% so and like it now it varies
1: it varies per yeah. city and what the ordinance is but a big issue with california is that the california coastal commission which controls any waterway connected to California coast, um, they are pretty much king in this region. So what they say goes. And it's been a battle with them trying to essentially prove that just because you're living on a boat doesn't mean that you're damaging the environment because there are inherent risks involved with boating in general, you know, with bottom paint and uh, black water and just gray water in general, you're adding a lot of things to the environment. So with the thought that you have someone living on their boat full time, they see it as that's only going to increase the issue. So they're trying to keep the waterways clean, which we appreciate, but it can also make it harder for liveaboards like Chris and I, who care about the environment and just want to live on a boat. So it's a very strange balance, a weird time too, since Chris mentioned there are so many cities that are cracking down on that percentage um, I, the marina that we're at currently is only 5% live aboard where the neighboring one is 50%. But the wait list for that marina is about five years long. So that's an issue you run into a lot. And, and I
0: think too, like, uh, if you talk to any, if you call any marina in California and say, Hey, I'd like to get a live aboard slip. I would say there's a 95% chance they're going to send you packing. Uh,
1: they're just going to tell you that they're full or that they have a wait, a wait list.
0: list, But but I think the number one best advice is that don't just take that for what it is. You have to dig a little deeper when it comes to California. Living board slips, you have to come in and show a face, show the boat that helps a lot. Showing a boat that isn't, you know, two steps hazard. away from being a fire sinking. hazard or sinking, uh, goes a long ways. And then if you're just a nice person, Uh, that goes the rest, that goes, you know, the next mile. Good
1: intentioned people tend to be favored.
3: So you live uh, in a marina in uh, Ventura, California area. Can you give a general idea of what's sort of the general amount of money that you would pay for a Liverpool slip or kind of like the monthly costs that go with uh, being a Liverpool in a marina in your region?
1: Yeah, so in our region, it's a little bit unique because we live in a blue-collar region where we're in between LA, which is definitely kind of more hoity-toity as well as Santa Barbara. But our region, I would say a slip non liveaboard aboard for a 40-foot boat runs between $500 to $800. And then the live-aboard fees on top of that for two people would run anywhere from $200 to $400. So um, it's still cheaper in relation to renting an apartment in California. Absolutely. But then there's the cost of electrical if the marina does electrical charges or water. Fortunately, the marina we're at does not charge for water, and our electrical usage is very low due to our solar and our lithium batteries. So that's been awesome. But yeah, that's generally the cost in this region.
3: Yeah, no, I appreciate you sharing. Sometimes it's so hard to get the actual answers uh, for these questions. So uh, thank you for sharing that. And what kind of facilities do you have in the marina, or do you even? care about like do you do your own laundry on the boat and showers and all that on the boats or so
0: these are really important especially i mean when you're paying a thousand dollars plus a month it's not cheap so okay. i like to have nice bathrooms i grew up in berkeley where the bathrooms were not so great didn't even have laundry really really that you could do and if you had laundry it was a trek away and you're going to get mugged on the way there
1: yeah you don't go out um, at night around there
0: <laughs> so like i've seen really really bad where like you don't want to touch the walls here in ventura um it's actually been i mean everywhere i've gone to down here has been like really nice santa barbara has great facilities uh where we are at in ventura isle they just remodeled everything so everything's like brand new which is awesome and then it's kind of just across the board you'll find that i would say in this area uh northern california things are starting to get revamped which is good um but yeah i mean it's It's sort of a toss bag whether or not people have nice facilities. Yeah.
1: For us, when we go cruising, we're not going to be in a marina. But when we are paying the money to be in a marina, we want to make sure that the living situation is
0: everything that it could be. Yeah.
1: Yeah, We want to get the worth out of it. Which is
0: laundry, which is a nice hot shower, which is those kind of things.
1: Yeah. And all three bathrooms. So there's three bathrooms on property and they were all newly remodeled. Really nice. Um, We're within walking distance of a grocery store Mm -hmm. and numerous different marine stores as well we yeah, are able to get boat parts really easily it's a really which great is, area
0: Ventura, to do yeah. the work like there's a lot of knowledgeable people here but also it's very inexpensive to just get materials which is great
1: yeah so that's another thing to keep in mind is anywhere where you're going to have a slip you want to make sure you have access to the things you need to survive so facilities are fantastic um the location is fantastic and we're so close to the channel islands it literally cannot get better than where we are spot. at
3: that's awesome. I'm glad you have a great spot that you're living in. And you mentioned earlier that you've now been liveaboards for about three years. And, you know, you're working on the boat, uh, you're uh, working on your jobs and the boat, <laughs> from the boat, uh, you know, preparing for new adventures. So I'm wondering, is there any source of frustration that you're experiencing these days as a liveaboard? Uh, maybe something that, you know, someone who's just dreaming about this doesn't even think about is there something you're dealing with finding something that is a challenge or anything like that
0: i think the biggest challenge that you're going to see more and more of in california especially is that there's just going to be more restrictions on what you can legally do when it comes to maintenance on your boat either working in the slip a lot of that's becoming more of a no-no uh paints that you can use are getting harder and harder to find that are actually going to work another thing that's very common is that there's yearly uh rate bumps So expect a 5% rate increase almost every year, if not every two years. So it is just getting more and more expensive, like housing itself. Uh, But that, like I just said, it's like housing itself. It's more of these things are just kind of in the world we're living in. I don't know if it's specifically the marine industry. But other than that, I think anything, any problems are just normal, basic uh live aboard boat things of like if it's raining outside and you want to take a shower you're gonna have to run (laughs) up very quickly you know (laughs) but that that's just kind of comes with the territory and like yeah doing laundry if you don't have it on the boat like we don't is is a thing like you have to lug it up steps and you got to find it and then you know you got to do all that kind of stuff and hopefully someone doesn't steal it but again that that is just the territory of living on a boat there's there's inconveniences with with it but you know it's all it's all relative i guess
3: yeah, yeah. Well, what do you think counts as working on your boat? Is that when the power tools come out? That's a no-no, or is it even something lesser than that? It's really like hard to
0: spell and again, it comes extremely down to where you're at. Some marinas won't even let you, you know, grab a piece of sandpaper and touch wood because there's dust in the air. Some marinas are not like that at all, where you can do. I would say everything you should be doing in a slip when it comes to varnishing, even some paintwork. A lot of marinas wouldn't allow you, and I, I, there's good reason for it, too, to do uh, fiberglass repair. Small things here and there is totally fine, but, like, giant voids in, you know, the top of your boat that you're going to try to fix. or so like, yeah. fixing things that are just blowing dust everywhere, that's not okay. Um,
1: Environmentally as well, they're trying yeah. to protect the environment because there's good. a lot of people that don't know how to set up a proper workspace. So, there there's a lot of human error where you'll get oil in the water you'll get fiberglass dust you'll get resin you'll get uh varnish teak oil all these things that go in the water and people forget that just because you're in a marina doesn't mean that it doesn't affect marine life i mean we've had dolphins coming through the marina and just to see the state of the water sometimes sometimes there'll be oil from some of the fishing rigs that come in and blow their bilges and it's just it it really hurts to see because Sometimes, I mean, you can feel so removed from that idea, and you can be so invested in the romantic side of sailing that you forget that there is inherent risk and consequences for the, in, the irresponsibleness. Um, I was like, when, if we we do bought, something wrong. when we bought our
0: boat, the, the bilge was, was covered in oil. I mean, there was oil, and like the, the bilge itself had inches of oil in it uh that was like so every time the bilge pump would go on it would just it, the boat would just blow oil everywhere and it was a huge problem and it was one of those things where it's like god i can't believe this is this is going on for 40 years like that's insane to me so that, yeah. that was like the first thing we did was scrub our bilge clean to a point where you could eat out of it basically uh because i i did not have the heart to let i mean i remember i turned off the bilge pump the first day and we did like we would sink <laughs> rather than like I did not have the heart for that stuff to go in the in the ocean. Then, and, and there's some things that like are kind of out of your control. Whether or not you can do it, a job like that in the water. Like if your fuel tanks start leaking, and you know, you're just like some things. You just have to have the mentality of like I need to get out of the water because I I should be more responsible than than trying to get away with something because the, the consequences of messing up the oceans is, in my opinion, too too big of a risk. Yeah, so, yeah. But we we've done a lot of work on it. Like. Ventura has been very uh, gracious with us because very we've done, lenient. Very lenient. We've very done trusting. <laughs> a lot of work in our slip, like tons. Like we built our bulwarks. We did all the painting. Uh, not
1: all the painting. Not yeah. all
0: the paint, like the top side yeah. paint. But on the, on the deck, we did all of the non-skid, all of the varnish. The interior, I rebuilt. I mean, we rebuilt the entire thing. So like there's been... Yeah. Many sheets of four by you know, many, many, many four by eight sheets of plywood that have gone down to the boat and been cut. And, uh, I mean, we keep a clean space, but
1: that's actually leads into another thing is that so many people see us doing this work, not only just on YouTube, but even on the dock we always want to make sure we're setting a good example and that people don't see us doing something and saying, Oh, well they did it. So I can do this because Chris it. and I take a lot of pride and put a lot of effort into keeping such a clean space. That we don't want other people to mimic what we do and fall short of that standard because there is such an inherent risk, as mentioned. So we don't want that to be our fault per se. We don't want you know someone to drop a whole can of varnish or oil or something in the water and be like, "Oh, well, I saw that they were doing this project and I thought I could do it, but I didn't do it right, so now we
0: have just, a just a common oil knowledge. spill." Yeah, just common, yeah. just common decency. Think can go
1: common sense.
3: But you know, common sense is not always that common, and there's a lot of ignorance. Uh, but you know, good meaning, but ignorant people out there as well. So I really appreciate that you are uh, taking extra considerations there. Yes, and and it overall, it's a great thing that the marinas are strict. If the idea is to protect the environment and everybody else's sort of uh, comfort um, for living in the marina, so so it's it's not all bad. But I can understand that it certainly causes some challenges and frustrations when you need to do. When you need to get stuff done.
0: I would say, and I actually, I thought of something that would be the biggest annoyance uh, is dealing with waste in, in the uh, in the slip. Because you're not pumping it out. You, you know, it's going into a holding tank. So up in Berkeley, that was something that was really convenient is that they had a monthly service that they would come to your boat and pump out your tanks for free. And that was great. You didn't ever really think about it. In Ventura, it's not that way. If you want someone to come to your boat, it's at least $15 every time to do it. Uh, Or you have to take your boat out and either go out into the ocean far enough where you're safe to drop your tanks, or you go out to a pump out that is not mobile. So that would probably be the biggest. Assuming that
1: they're all working right now, there's only one functioning pump out in a in a harbor that has well over a thousand boats. So it's it's
0: crazy. Yeah,
1: it's not ideal. There are five pump outs; only one works.
0: (laughs) So that would be, I would say, the biggest right now. that it's just kind of (laughs) stupid. That that's just that. There, There's should worse be, things there should in be the world, more though. like things. There should be more mobile pump outs in our area that would be not so expensive. It's Fifteen dollars a month yeah. is can get pricey. The I mean, price
1: we pay for Paradise, I
0: suppose. I know, seriously.
3: Yeah, I- exactly. No, but I appreciate you sharing all of that because uh, these are the things that you don't hear that often. So it's great to hear. But you've given so much uh, great insight into life as a liveaboard in California. And I'm wondering uh, to wrap this up, would you have any tips or advice for anybody who is, same in their 20s or 30s and thinking about making uh, this transition from land life to be a liveaboard?
1: Yeah, so we actually get that question quite a bit. And my favorite piece of advice is to leave your expectations at the dock, you're going to go into this with an idea. So many people get inspired by YouTube channels and uh, Instagram influencers. So they have this romantic idea of sailing and living aboard or tiny life in general. And then they start doing it and realize that it's not all it chalked up to be. So leave your expectations at the dock. Get on as many boats as you can. There's so many different designs out there and so many different things that can meet your needs. So the best thing to do is to figure out what you want in a boat and what you don't want. And then narrow down the list from there.
0: Other than that, it's, everything else is good. But there's There's always moments of like, why am I doing this? Like when the holding tank blows apart and you have to deal with that at 12 o'clock in the, in the night or you know that's just an example but like those kind of things are constant on a boat you have them there's, there's always something that blows up in your face that you didn't expect that was going to happen today so like you have to at least in my experience we've we've tried to just take things with like more of a comedic relief moment of like oh I guess I'm going to do this today <laughs> like, versus getting mad because yeah it is so frequent that if you got upset every time it happened it wouldn't be fun in my opinion so
1: life is supposed to be fun life is supposed to be fun so make those tough moments fun because when you're looking back I promise they will be 10 times as funny even if in the moment you are wishing you lived far away from the ocean
3: (laughs) so find the silver lining and uh, you know at least they will make good stories uh, for a podcast Well, that's fantastic. I appreciate you sh- uh, sharing all these good tips and advice. And uh, I would love to hear where can people go follow you guys along? You mentioned a YouTube channel. I've mentioned you guys on Instagram. So can you just throw out your handles and, and anywhere else you may want to direct people to check you guys out at?
1: Absolutely. So you can find us pretty much on any social media platform if you search SV SVAvocet. Our YouTube channel is Sailing Avocet and our website is SVAvocet.com. So uh, feel free to reach out to us and ask questions. We're always happy to answer questions about boat projects or sailing life in general.
3: So there you have it. Definitely go give Chris and Marissa a follow on YouTube or social media. They are a lovely couple with a ton of good advice to share. I really enjoyed hearing about the things that they find a bit frustrating Because, as we know, the liverbird life is not all butterflies and rainbows. And it is really helpful to have these real-life experiences to manage the expectations a little bit. Next week is a bit of a special episode again, as I dive deep into all things insurance. This episode will be super valuable, and it kind of already changed my bird shopping plans. So, definitely stay tuned for that one. It will be out next Wednesday. And until then, you can find me on social media and Patreon as Liverboard Sailing Podcast. Bye for now.
2: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.